A reading from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16, starting with verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. reading from the letter to the Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what, is, what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. He spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva and smeared the clay on his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back able to see. 
His neighbors and those who had seen him earlier as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit and beg? Some said it is, but others said, no, he just looks like him. He said, I am. They brought the one who was once blind to the Pharisees. Now Jesus had made clay and opened his eyes on a Sabbath. So then the Pharisees also asked him how he was able to see. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and now I can see. So some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a sinful man do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what do you have to say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. They answered and said to him, you were born totally in sin and you're trying to teach us? Then they threw him out. When Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, he found him and said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered and said, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him and the one speaking with you is he. He said, I do believe, Lord. And he worshiped him. The gospel of the Lord. Good to be with you all this morning on the fourth Sunday of Lent. We have passed the halfway point in Lent. So if Lent has been a struggle for you, know that Easter is coming. In fact, on the fourth Sunday of Lent, um, it actually is, I can't pronounce the Latin right now, but there, this, today is a, a day where we acknowledge, okay, rejoicing is coming. We're headed in this direction. Contrary to popular belief, Lent is not a downer season. <laughs> it's not a season where we wallow in how wretched, miserable sinners we are. It's not a season where, like Eeyore the donkey and Winnie the Pooh, we mope around with the occasional, thanks for noticing me, right? No. Lent is a time where we acknowledge our dependence on God, and that's a beautiful thing. We need healing from our sin, but that's a wonderful thing because it is in this place, in this place of dependence and of need, that we're able to receive the grace we so desperately need. Our confidence comes from that place, the God who meets us in our vulnerability, in the midst of our need, and the God who saves us. But it also requires that we have eyes to see and ears to hear. If our confidence is in God, this means our confidence is not in ourselves, not in the place or the narratives that we've received from the world. And in our Old Testament reading, we hear the anointing of the future king of Israel, David. And in these kinds of stories, we have to be careful because they're so familiar. Any of you that grew up in church probably heard this story at vacation Bible school or in Sunday school over and over again. And we have to guard ourselves from what we call the Aesop's fabulization of these Bible stories, <laughs> where we read them and we think it's just a moral tale, or there's a nice moral that comes out of it. We have to protect ourselves from thinking that David is an emerging superhero, one of the many superheroes in the Bible. And that David, of course, he slayed Goliath, and so this is his origin story and where he comes from. Well, no, it's way more complicated than that. The characters of the Bible are often way more complicated than we imagine. For example, take this backstory. Saul is rejected as king, but Saul's not all bad, right? He has some good things in his life. And in fact, you could say this one instance where he disobeyed God feels really technical, 
right? There's some good in Saul. David is God's choice, but he makes some terrible mistakes along the way. People are complicated. (laughs) This is a story not primarily about David, but about God. And this is how it often works out in our own lives. As much as we want to separate the world into good guys and bad guys, (laughs) we go, the good guys are over here and the bad guys are over here. Things are so much more complicated than that. And you'll find that as you draw close to people in your lives. It's easy to keep folks in categories until you really get to know them. (laughs) You realize, wow, this person in front of me is a complicated individual. You may find some of the most generous people you know don't share your fervent political perspective. Some of the most pious people have deep flaws in their lives. Some of the leaders we look up to have deep insecurities that they wrestle with. Human beings are a complicated mixture of pain and joy and brokenness and virtue. In fact, the more I've been in pastoral ministry, I realize there's really no one who has grown up all the way as a Christian or mature. As soon as you get to those, you know, the people that you kind of go, that's a, well, that's a person that's kind of fully matured or in the Wesleyan tradition, kind of fully sanctified or almost, almost there. You go, oh no, there's some deep pain there. There's some deep brokenness. We all have flaws. The choice is what do we do with those? Do we hide them? Or do we open ourselves up to God and to others? The first thing that happens in this story is the characters in the story become afraid. So Samuel is afraid of Saul. He's going to anoint David as king, but he's afraid of Saul, the current king. And the people are afraid of Samuel. What's Samuel going to do in our village? What's going to happen here? Following the will of God can be scary. It seems easier to just go along with whatever everything around us is telling us, and whatever we can control. So Samuel's able to escape Saul's gaze and go to the house of Jesse, and he does so under the cover of sacrifice. So I'm going just to sacrifice, just to worship with these people, with this family and the the house of Jacob. So no king anointing happening here today, just worship. That's all we're doing. But the choosing of a new king is God's business from start to finish. God chooses the tribe the king will come from, the family, and the king himself. Samuel sees all the sons of Jesse, and he sees Eliab, and he thinks, this has got to be the guy, verse 6. We guess that Eliab must have been tall or good-looking because of God's response. God says, don't consider his appearance or his height. If we remember, that was part of Saul's allure as king, is that he looked the part. He's really tall and handsome, right? Samuel is in danger of following that narrative instead of following what God wants. Verse 7, you've probably heard it many times before. It's a central famous verse. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God understands that the foundation of a good kingdom is not the same as the foundation of the kingdoms of the world. It's not the king's appearance. It's not strategic thinking, though strategic thinking can come in handy. It's not military strength. Those those can't be the foundation of God's kingdom. What will make this kingdom go well is the king's heart, is the king wise, is the king loving. 
Tim Keller suggests that in our modern culture, we are unable to agree on the internals, things that are going on inside what's true and good and right. So we so often focus on the externals, what others look like or what we look like. But external beauty is fading, but character grows over time. God challenges Samuel not to be distracted. Before Israel had a king, remember, they were unlike every other nation because they didn't have a king. God was their king. And God relented to their request to give them a king, but that fundamental reality about who they are has not changed. They still are a people who are oriented towards God. God is their king. He is sovereign over them. He runs things. So the kings chosen from among them should be chosen differently from how they're chosen in other nations. God is challenging Israel to a new way of seeing themselves and seeing the world. In most of the Old Testament, firstborns are often given precedent in matters of inheritance. This is called promogenitor. One might say that this story represents a reversal of that because David is the youngest. He's the eighth son, and so he's actually declared king, which would have been completely strange. But it's even further than that. Jesse had seven sons, which in Scripture is the number of completion. Okay, we're finished. we got seven kids. This is the number of completion. It's perfect. And the eighth son is like an extra or an add-on or unnecessary. And yet, he is the one who's chosen. David is sent off to care for the sheep, which was an important domestic chore for the family. But that would prove to be important. It is because of David that the image shepherd that we read in Psalm 23, that that image of shepherd ever becomes associated with kingship. That's not really part of the ancient world. People would not look at a shepherd and go, oh yeah, that's an image of a king or a leader. No, it's because of David that all of this emerges in the first place. While David's selection as king is surprising, it's in continuity with the rest of the Old Testament. So many of the patriarchs were chosen out of order in a way that went against social norms. So if you look at Seth, Noah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Ephraim, Moses, maybe even Abraham, it all is kind of out of order. God seems to prefer it this way. Even Samuel's calling from a mother who was barren is considered out of order. The scripture tells us how God works in weakness, not in what we perceive to be strength. If you remember, the whole reason why Israel wanted a king in the first place was so that they could be an empire like other nations. But what God does is he takes the concept of kingship and he flips it upside down. The one who is perceived to be weak is promoted. Now for the Christian, of course, this rumors the crucified one who is raised in power. How does this weak one accomplish the role of the king of Israel? Okay, so we could say, all right, David's chosen in weakness. There's nothing incredibly special about him. Um, You know, how could he possibly be the king? Well, we're told in verse 13, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. God has been the hero of the story all along. Now, by saying God looks at the heart, it's not saying All right, so David, out of all these brothers, David is the one who's got the best heart. He's got the best character, so that's why God chooses him. No, remember, God's the hero of the story, not David. But what it's saying is it's really about the Holy Spirit rushing in the heart of a person that can lead them to this place. 
We live in a culture bombarding us with images solely focused on the external or the outward appearance. This is true not in terms just of image, kind of external image, that's true, of course, but also in how we think of success in this world, how we think of the good life. We have so many narratives that push us in a certain direction. But in order to see the heart, we need nothing less than the work of the Holy Spirit to discern what God is doing in our midst. In our epistle reading, Paul has just written this section against sexual immorality, against greed, obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking. And this section tells us, okay, why as a Christian are you to avoid such things? What's the purpose? Well, the purpose is because we are the people of the light. Lynn Kohick says, Paul instructs believers to become in real time what they already are in Christ. So in other words, the reason why you're supposed to avoid such behaviors is because you're not that. (laughs) You don't pursue that because that's not your identity. That's not who you are. You are children of light. And then Paul uses this imagery of fruit. There's fruit of the light. This is the fruit that's produced because of the light. And he says it it consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Again, from Kohik, she says, fruit is the product of the natural growing cycle. An apple tree will produce apples, not peaches. A fig tree will produce figs, not pineapples. And a believer who is light will produce that which characterizes Christ's life of love and kindness, charity and integrity. But works of darkness, Paul warns, are unfruitful. So Paul says, have nothing to do with deeds of darkness, but rather expose them, expose the deeds of darkness. What does it mean to expose deeds of darkness? Well, different scholars have interpreted this in different ways and different preachers over the years. Some have said this is an excuse for direct confrontation. Whenever we see something wrong in the world, we are to expose it, right? We're to call it out. Some have added in their translations on Twitter, right? And there's certainly times for that. There's certainly times where Christians are not to be silent in the face of evil. Totally appropriate. But Paul is saying something else, I think. That somehow the church's very presence as the people of light has a transforming effect. That just by being who we are, light shines. Now, the church in my lifetime has spent so much time trying to figure out how to gain power so that we can transform the culture. And in doing so, we have so often used the means of darkness to do that thing. You can be right and be a jerk in doing so. And when you do that, you actually make the truth into a lie. Because that's not what we're called to Paul says transformation happens by being who we are called to be. One of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, says, Light exposes what takes place in the darkness. Insofar as you are light, your goodness shines forth. The wicked are not able to hide. Their actions are illuminated as though a lamp were at hand. Think about the life of Jesus. His very presence, true love steps into the world, true light steps into the world, and the evil forces in religion and politics rise to the surface. 
we see what we're really capable of. That when true love steps into our world, they take it out all on him. They crucify him. Because of this, Paul says, you don't even need to talk about the deeds of darkness. The way that we speak and the way that we think and the way that we live shapes us, changes us. But the light, who you are as children of light, both reveals and transforms. In the J.B. Phillips translation of verse 13, it says, It is even possible, after all, it happened to you, for light to turn the thing it shines upon into light also. So Paul then quotes an old hymn, and it's so interesting as you read about this. Like he quotes his hymn, and everybody agrees it's an old hymn, but nobody has any idea where it came from. (laughs) So he says this, Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Christians are those who have been awakened by the light, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what God has done. We are no longer asleep, but we need that regular reminder, you're not asleep, you're awake. Don't move towards darkness, move towards the light. I love Eugene Peterson on this verse. He says, Christian worship is actually the thing that reminds us of this awakening every week. It's the thing that wakes us up. Even the language that we speak when we worship together and the postures that we inhabit in worship are designed to open our eyes. Here's what he says. The call to worship wakes us up to what is going on in and around us. Sleeper, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Peterson says this. The world is alive with God. Look, listen, lift up your hearts, come and eat. In our gospel reading, we see the story of Jesus and the man born blind. It's clear that John wants us to place ourselves in this story. All of us are blind without Christ, and all of us are fully loved by him. All of us, like the disciples, have preconceived notions about the world that have to be challenged and have to be flipped upside down. All of us, like the Pharisees and the man's parents, face fears that are out of our control. Seeing the man born blind, the disciples assume there's a connection between the man's inability to see and his previous sin. They think he must have done something wrong, or maybe his parents did something wrong. They first see the man as an object for sociological speculation. Jesus doesn't see him that way. Jesus sees him in his pain for who he really is. Jesus resists the disciples' analysis of the world. The world doesn't work like that. I think in our world today, we know that it's really only the most extreme fringe parts of certain religions that would affirm this rudimentary form of karma that that the disciples are affirming here. But sometimes we still subtly have those beliefs and we still communicate those. But the world is not a big vending machine where you do a good act and good comes out, or you do an evil act and evil comes out. Yes, there are consequences to um, there are consequences in the world. There are blessings in the world, right action, wrong action. But it's not ever neat and tidy. Our messy world is not simple like we think it is. There's something deeper going on. In fact, the world is much stranger than that, and God's love shines brighter than that. So it's important to note that 
Though Jesus says um, that this man was born blind for God's glory. This is not, he's not saying that God first imposes illness so that he can later dramatically heal it. God doesn't need to do a trick like that. Illness and disease happen in our world because our world is broken. God's will is not fully done in the world as it is. As Chris Green says, God is willing that his will not be done, at least not all at once. And yet God is at work in the world. John is showing us something, that this man's blindness is the raw materials of new creation. And this story of the blind man who is healed is a signpost of what God is doing for the whole world, that he is giving us eyes to see. That's an important thing to remember about Jesus' miracles, is Jesus didn't go around and just heal everybody. That's not how it worked in the Gospels. In fact, John calls these signs, and it's there for a reason. They're signs in the present of what God will do for the whole world in the future. And they're always intentional. So here, the purpose here is God is doing for this man, giving sight what he desires for the whole world and what he will create for the whole world, that we will have eyes to see him. That's why those are called signs. This reminds us of the creation story, which begins in chaos, darkness over the surface of the water. And in the middle of this chaos, God creates light and creation unfolds. And then in Genesis 2, God creates human beings out of the dust and out of his own breath, right? You remember, he takes the dust and he breathes his life into the dust. Well, here we have a new creation in this story because he heals the man with dust and his own spit, which is supposed to point us to breath, right? Both of those together. Jesus then tells the man to go wash in the pool of Siloam. This is the beginning of the man's healing. He simply trusts and obeys. So you can imagine that Jesus tells him, he heals him, but the man's not fully healed yet. And he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Even that is an act of trust. He's got to go and do that even though he can't yet see. Some see here a reference to baptism. The man is washed, which is a way God brings about his healing. Rowan Williams says, baptism means being with Jesus in the depths. The depths of human need, including the depths of our own selves in their need. But also in the depths of God's love. In the depths where the Spirit is recreating and refreshing human life as God meant it to be. After his healing, the man's neighbors can't figure out if he's the same guy they remember that's blind and begging. He's been changed. He's been baptized. He is different. But the question remains, how did this happen? And of course, the simple answer that this man gives is Jesus. So the neighbors ask the same question that we often ask in our broken world. Where is this man? Where is the one who can bring about our healing and our restoration in the brokenness of our world and the decay of our world? Like, where is the one who does this? We then see two groups steeped in fear as response to this healing. Fear often comes out of chaos. So when we're confronted with something that's outside our control and our expectations, we just do whatever we can in the moment to remain in control. We make judgments and threats, and sometimes we act violently against the person or thing that has threatened our control. So the Pharisees are afraid of a new uprising. 
And as a result of Jesus, they believe that, okay, they won't be able to control the situation. So because of this, they make the decision, anybody claiming Jesus as the Messiah will be cut off from the synagogue. But they're not the only ones who are afraid. The man's parents are also afraid. They're afraid of the Pharisees. They're concerned about their social standing. Can we worship in the synagogue? Maybe they're even fear for their lives. And this causes them to actually give their son over to them and put all the burden of proof on him. So they say he can speak for himself. I encourage us as we've seen two stories where fear plays such a central role. We have to ask ourselves, what are our fears today? What are we afraid of? Where did they come from? In one of his letters, John, the same author here says, perfect love casts out all fear. The invitation is to grasp onto our story as the people of God, the story of the God who is love. This man, after he was healed, he hadn't figured it all out yet, but he knew his story. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied. And I washed, and now I see. From Scripture, we see that love is what cuts through. We must not respond to the fear of our world with more fear, to the hatred and exclusion in our world with more hatred and exclusion. We are to be the people of love because we're the people of light. At one point, the man born blind seems exasperated by the Pharisees' questions. Finally, he says, I've already told you, and you didn't listen. But he actually says, why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Fleming Rutledge says that the Pharisees are browbeating the man with the power of their tradition, but, quote, by the power of the Spirit, the lowly blind man is becoming a preacher of the gospel. This man's testimony is of fear overcome by love. It says even that he was thrown out of the temple for what he says about Jesus. But look at this. Jesus found him in verse 35. What a picture. The man is thrown out of God's house, the temple, only to be found by the one in whom God dwells. Jesus is close to those who have been thrown out. Now we live in a world today of So much complexity and murkiness. There's so many different perspectives, many of which claim to be representing God. Who gets to determine right from wrong? What is it, what is of God and what is not of God? Ultimately, this is a question of authority. Who is in charge? For John, Jesus is the one who sees clearly, the only one. After he's ascended, the same work will be carried on by the Holy Spirit, John tells us. The story says that Jesus' presence divides the world into two. There are those who are blind who see, and those who see will become blind. In other words, those who are searching and longing to see clearly, to see the world as it is, they come to Jesus and they're healed. By contrast, those who have always believed, hey, I see everything rightly, I see everything clearly, they actually live in darkness and their vision will continue to be obscured. So one of the tasks of the prophesied Messiah is he would bring judgment to bear on the world. And this is what judgment really is, shining light on things and giving an accurate picture. 
Okay, so in our readings today, we're challenged by perception and reality. What is true? What does it mean to see clearly? And who gets to decide? I think it causes us to ask, what are the counterfeit narratives we often accept and we substitute for being able to see clearly? This is so important because these counterfeit stories lead us to darkness. They lead us to the inability to see what God is up to in our world and in our lives. What are the false stories that I believe that are counter to the good news of Jesus? Maybe you say, I don't believe in any false stories. I believe in the Jesus story. That's it. But think about the stories that call us, call me, to put on a perfect face, to pretend I'm killing it when I'm really struggling. These are the stories that tell me to run away from suffering and weakness. These are the stories of the outward appearance when God looks at the heart. The David story reminds us Israel is to be formed as a different kind of people because God's people are always different. The kingdom of God looks way more like shepherd than it does like emperor. God is up to something and will never understand it by the world's appearances. Paul would say elsewhere, by the flesh, by the narratives of the world that are decaying. We'll only discover this through listening to the Spirit. And being that kind of people does something in the world. Children of light shine light wherever they go, not because we try really, really hard at shining light, but because our very presence transforms the world in a mysterious way, revealing broken things and simultaneously pointing their he- promoting their healing and restoration. Paul is not telling us to do more, but to embrace and live into our identity as a people of light. But we so often follow false stories about ourselves and the world because we're afraid. We're afraid we won't have the good life. We're afraid we won't get the approval and acceptance that we crave. We're afraid we'll be out of control. But perfect love is the only thing that casts out fear. Knowing that we are loved, expressing and sharing that love to a broken world is the only thing that casts out that fear. When we get that, we'll not just see it for ourselves, we'll see it for others. We don't look at people for what they can do for us, but people beloved by God. If you're struggling and suffering today, know that your suffering and your struggles and your vulnerability are the raw materials of God's new creation. May we live into who we already are, children of light. May we be liberated from fear, which is cast out by Christ's perfect love. And may we trust in the one who sees everything clearly. Amen.